Good morning. And can I just uh, say before I begin the uh, sermon, uh, just thank you very much for everybody who's been involved in Passion for Life in, in one way or another. So many of you have been involved. It's been, I can't thank you all individually, but it's been a fantastic uh, well, five weeks, probably, uh, since Henry Olonga started it all off in, in February. Uh, uh, so much has happened. So many people have heard the gospel of Christ because of a passion for life, not only through the events here, but also through the events at other churches as well. And we just need to be grateful to God for that and to go on praying uh, that the Spirit will be working in their hearts. So thank you. Thank you so much uh, for participating in A Passion for Life. And uh, please don't think it all ends here. Uh, I'm still looking for ideas for things that we can do in the future. So thank you for that. An article in the uh, EDP again uh, this Friday revealed that parents are giving more and more expensive uh, presents to the teachers at the end of year. Gold bracelets, £1,000 in gift vouchers, a Mulberry handbag, theatre tickets, they've all been given to some lucky teachers. <laughs> Not you, Paul? No. <laughs> well, perhaps you were one of the unlucky ones. Uh, one received a half-eaten bar of chocolate. Have you had one of those? Another reported receiving a second-hand ripped book with some of the pages missing. So not so good. We're looking at 2 Corinthians today, and I reckon if uh, Paul had received a gift from the Corinthian church in around AD 55, I think he would have got that half-eaten chocolate bar. He seems to be engaged in an almost constant battle with the Corinthian church. As Diana reminded us last week, and perhaps we can have the slide up, Andrew, it's a complicated passage, and it's quite a complicated book, and there's complicated uh, context behind it, so I thought I'd give you a slide just to help. Paul founded this church, and he stayed with them for about 18 months, much longer than he normally would do. He knew them personally. He knew these people. He'd done his best to help them with uh, all the questions that they had in, in what we now call the First Corinthians, but that's probably at least his second letter to them. There's one prior to First Corinthians, which we don't have any longer. So there's lots of questions there that the Corinthian church wrote to Paul with questions and he answered them in 1 Corinthians. He went back and visited them again in AD 55. During that time when he visited them, he discovered that there was some gross sexual immorality or immorality within the church. There was obviously a bit of a spat uh, and there was obviously pain all around because of this open, unrepented sin that Paul discovered and quite rightly rebuked. Uh, during his second visit in AD 55. During that visit, he also promised that he would return to visit them soon. But having gone away and reflected a little bit on all the pain and the grief that had been caused, he chose to write to them instead another letter, which scholars sometimes call the severe letter. It was obviously quite a stinging rebuke to this church for putting up with this open, unrepented sin in their fellowship. After writing that um, severe letter, of course, they didn't have the excellent postal service that we have today, so he had to wait. <laughs> he had to wait for a long time, and it was an anxious wait as he waited for news about how they would respond to this severe letter that he had written to them. Not hearing anything, Paul changed his plans, and he decided he wouldn't go back for the third visit just now, fearing the worst. But this cancellation seems to have brought him into even more criticism. And today's passage is a bit like picking up all the church's dirty washing, sifting through the laundry basket, and seeing what we can find in the underbelly of this Corinthian church. It deals with sin, 
and the messy, painful business of church discipline. But it also deals with some godly leadership and forgiveness. So we begin, before we begin properly, let's uh, pray, shall we? Father God, as we uh, look at 2 Corinthians, we uh, praise you and thank you for uh, Paul's pioneering work amongst the churches in that area. And Lord, we thank you that your spirit is still alive and, and working amongst us now to help us to understand your scriptures, your word, and apply it to our lives. Help us do that this morning, I pray. Amen. You'll need to have it open in front of you. It's page 1159 and uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1 beginning at verse 23. So what can we learn from this passage? Well, I have three points for you today as normal. The love of godly leadership, the seriousness of sin, and the power of forgiveness. So firstly, the love of godly leadership. The love of godly leadership. How hurtful this relationship with Corinth must have been to Paul. After all, as I said, he had founded the church. He knew them personally. He had even refused to accept any money from them whilst he was living with them so that they couldn't accuse him of just taking the money from, from them. And yet they were accusing him of being a liar, of not accepting his hospitality, and of changing his mind and his travel plans, and even of avoiding them. So verse 16 of chapter 1 says, I plan to visit you on my way to Macedonia, and to come back to you from Macedonia, and then to have to send me on my way to Judea. When I planned this, did I do it lightly? Or do I make my plans in a worldly manner, in, so that in the same breath I say yes, yes, and no, no. Clearly, the church thought that he did make his plans in a worldly manner. They were upset that he had decided to go straight to Macedonia and not to visit them on the way. Why do travel plans always cause so much stress? In our family, we never have to think about where we're going. It's always Norwich to Salamanca, or Salamanca to Norwich, but we can never, ever decide when to go, or even in the summer how to go. We might fly or we might take the car. But we can always cause us stress making travel plans. In exasperation, in chapter 1, verse 23, Paul says to the church, I call God as my witness that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. You see, in not going to a Corinth, he was trying to spare them from pain. He was actually acting out of love. His love for the Corinthian church here in verses 23 to chapter 2, verse 4, is, is apparent. It's very clear. He says, we don't lord it over you. We work with you for joy. If I grieve you, who is left to make me glad? I had confidence in all of you. I wanted to share my joy. And even when he was writing severely to them, he said, I wrote to you out of great distress and anguish of heart, anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you. But, he says, to let you know the depth of my love for you. You see, Paul loved them even when he knew there were wrong things in the church, even when they were attacking his authority and his character, even when he was having to be severe with them himself. He wanted them to know the depth of the love that he had for them. It was a bumpy ride. This was no easy-going, mission-minded, generous, outward-looking church. They were preoccupied with their internal wranglings, theological issues, that allowed sin to go unchecked, and they were even not reluctant givers, as we see later on in chapter 8. And yet Paul, as their founder and their pastor, just loved this church. If it had been me, I probably would have said, Apollos, you can have them, I'm going somewhere else. But Paul stayed 
engaged with them because he loved them. And I guess that wasn't easy for him, but he did it anyway. How did he demonstrate this love? Well, firstly, we can see he taught them the truth. We can see that throughout all the correspondence that, we, that he has with them. And Paul says, as an apostle, his conscience is clear, and he has felt compelled to preach the gospel to them in, in, in the first letter to Corinthians. Secondly, he, we can see, again, through all the correspondence, he's challenged their wrong practice. But thirdly, and this is where we come to chapter 1, verse 23, thirdly, Paul knew when to stay away from them. Yes, there are times when the loving thing to do is to simply stay away. So having read this passage, I determined to go on holiday next week. Uh, You fully understand it's entirely to spare you and because I love you. Um, But I'm going away. Paul stayed away to spare them. Spare them from what? Was it just pain, their pain and his own pain? Was Paul simply bottling out of the confrontation that he knew he'd have to have with them? No, I think what he means here is that he stayed away to spare them from himself. Why? Because Paul, as it says in chapter 1, verse 1, is an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. An apostle carried the words of God to the people, and he carried the full weight of God's authority. And if Paul had turned up in Corinth, he knew, and they knew, that they would have to change their ways and do something about the sin that was apparent in their midst because he would confront them as an apostle with the word of God. It's a bit like the day uh, when I uh, decided to try and dig a tree out of my front garden. It wasn't a very large tree. It was only about this high, but it was one of those ones that really grow very fast, and it was only about a metre from my uh, living room window. Anyway, after a while, I got tired of digging and cutting away at the roots, so I decided to tie a rope to it, to the tree, and the other end to the back of my Rover Metro. And I tried to pull it out with the car. The result was, of course, that the tree stayed exactly where it was, and the Rover Metro just dug a little hole in the drive. When people come up against the Word of God, although we try to dig at it and we throw bits of it away or pull it this way and pull it that way, in the end, somebody has to move. And it's not going to be the word of God. But surely you might say, actually, well, God wanted them to respond to God's word. He wanted them to deal with the sinner. He wanted them to discipline them. And he wanted to have them be seen to be standing up for the gospel. Surely if he'd gone to see them as he had planned to do, his visit would have achieved all of that in super quick time, and the issue would have been resolved. Yes, but what Paul showed, how he showed his love to them, was by knowing when to stay away and to allow them to stand on their own two feet and decide for themselves what to do. You see, anyone can be convinced, can't they, by uh, when the big boss turns up, often by the strength of their personality or their argument or their access to more information or simply the power that they have over you, they get you to do something. But Paul didn't want that type of response. We know, don't we, that Paul never relied on his eloquence or superior wisdom as he proclaimed the gospel. On the contrary, he says in 1 Corinthians in chapter 2, he says, I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. He didn't want to lord it over their faith. 
in writing to them and challenging them and giving them the opportunity to respond, he saw himself as working with them, verse 24. He saw himself as strengthening their faith on which they stand. Why? So that there may be joy, verse 24, and gladness, verse 2, and rejoicing in verse 3. And because Paul says, I had confidence in all of you. Now, I'm not saying that Paul wasn't conscious of how deeply grieved uh, and how much pain would be caused by visits if he went to see them. But I don't think he would have shrunk from that if it had been in their best interests. But actually, what he knew was it would be far better for them to stand firm on their faith and to do what was required out of a genuine, heartfelt response to God's word, rather than simply because Paul the Apostle was in town. And that's what godly leadership aims to produce, a personal response to God's word. So pray for those of us in leadership, whether it's us, the clergy, or, or whether it's the small group's leaders or the children's leaders, or even if you're just in leadership in your normal job and you're trying to do that in a Christ-like way. Pray for all of us that we may have genuine love and wisdom when to, know, to know when to get involved and when not to get involved. And please forgive us when we get it wrong. Secondly, I want you to notice the seriousness of sin. Verse 5. If anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent, not to put it too severely. You can see here that Paul doesn't want to over-egg the pudding too much because he's going to go on and talk about forgiveness in a moment. But first, he doesn't want to let it escape our attention, the seriousness of sin. You see, whoever it was who had been openly sinning in the Corinthian church and had clashed so severely with Paul during his second visit, not only had caused grief to themselves and to Paul, but had caused grief to the whole church. In other words, we are all in this together. See, in spiritual terms, there is no such thing as a Tiger Woods morality, disciplined and focused in public and disordered chaos in private. Some people uh, just turn up to church on a Sunday or even a part of a small group and sing along together and listen to the sermon or look at the Bible together and then just walk away again as if nothing had happened. But the Bible says, no, it's not like that. We are all, in some sense, spiritually interwoven with all of us people who come together to either study the Bible or to hear it preached or to pray together. So if in my uh, next appointment I were to run off with the organist or something like that, I think there's little chance of me doing that here. Sorry, Richard, no offence. But if I were to do that in some future uh, uh, appointment, then my... It would have been an offence against God and against my wife, but it would also be an offence against the church as well. See, my moral behaviour spills over onto other believers. And I know that when I'm not right with God, then I can't serve you as I should. But it's not just the leader's sin that causes grief to the whole congregation. If we're all one body, then each of us can cause severe grief. If the toe is not doing its job, then we fall over. If the mouth is not working properly, then we embarrass ourselves. And if, like me, you've had a cold for weeks on end, then the whole body gets laid low, doesn't it? Or as a sick snake said to his friend, I've been laid even lower by this cold. Somebody from a different church said to me the other week, just a couple of weeks ago, 
doesn't matter in this day and age that the church warden is living with a man who, not, who is not her husband. She's lovely. Well, of course it does matter. And yes, it will affect the whole fellowship. So it is right that we go on talking about sin, not just because of its effect on the church, but also because ultimately we will all be judged by God. You see, there's something end-time-ish going on about all this. What we have now is grief, grief caused by our sin and grief caused to ourselves because we do not want to sin, but we go on sinning against our will. But at the end time, Jesus will judge our sin and for Christians, the grief will be replaced with joy. Just look at how many times grief is repeated there and joy comes repetitively in these verses. And so we do have a responsibility to each other. So I need to develop the habit more of asking you how you are progressing with the Lord. And you can ask me too. Because it matters. It matters so much that we take responsibility for each other. And we even exercise maybe a love that is, if necessary, prepared to inflict punishment. You see, in a sense, church discipline is just a forerunner of that judgment which is to come. And that's why Paul is overjoyed when he hears that they have indeed dealt with this unrepentant sinner in their midst. It says in verse 6, the majority have inflicted a punishment on him. And the word used here for punishment suggests some kind of formal process that the whole congregation was agreed on them, or at least it says the majority. But some of you may be thinking, well, I just, I just can't stomach all this talk about sin. I'd rather go somewhere well, they didn't talk about sin so much. Well, I'd rather just stay at home. But that, in a sense, would be to reject the whole Christian gospel. Because the Christian gospel is a good news of salvation. Christ was a saviour. He saved us from sin. So judgment is important. It's right that we talk about it a lot, about sin and how we need to hold each other accountable. But in terms of how church discipline should work in a formal sense today and in Yankton Church and in an age where people can just get in a car and drive to a different church if they don't like what they hear, then that's a difficult question. I'm going to leave that for Alan another day. <laughs> Except to say this. You see, in verse 11, it says we must be aware of Satan's schemes. You see, there's nothing that Satan likes more than a harsh unforgiving, unloving, judgmental church. For Paul, church discipline was remedial. It aimed to restore the individual to good spiritual health and to reunite them again with the fellowship. And here we must assume, although it doesn't actually say it here in the text, that the Corinthian sinner had repented following the discipline of his church. And that's why Paul can say in verse 6 and 7, the punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient for him. Now instead you ought to forgive him and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. You see, sometimes churches get, away, uh, get carried away with discipline. And it becomes not about the individual, but it becomes about the purity of the church or the comfort of our social groups. Mark Ashton, the vicar of St. Andrew's, St. Andrew the Great in Cambridge, wrote this. He said, all too often Christians think like this. We have gained, and as a result, we have gained the repetition for being an army that shoots our own wounded 
sometimes after torture. You see, in this way, we just get completely outwitted by Satan. He just loves to see us pushed away from meaningful forgiveness and into a kind of pharisaical judgment. Can we have the uh, second slide, Andrew? So we're pushed away from this meaningful forgiveness in the middle there, and we're pushed in one direction, which is pharisaical judgment. Yes, like Paul, we do want to bring people under the authority of God's word. And we do want to allow the Holy Spirit to speak to them through the words. That is the right way. The wrong way is to give them the cold shoulder of our own personal disapproval. Yes, God wants his church to be pure, but not through the rejection of people struggling with sin. After all, who among us would be here if we were all rejected for struggling with sin? There is, of course, the opposite scheme of Satan, which instead of tempting us into pharisaical judgment is to push us into false sentimentality, saying sin doesn't matter at all. God is love. God will forgive. And until the Corinthian church received that severe letter from Paul, that's where they were. They were putting up with this sin in their midst, and they weren't prepared to do anything about it. And that's why Paul is so overjoyed when he hears that finally they've done something about it. They formally punished the sinner. They have stood the test, he says in verse 9, and they've been obedient in everything. But now, you see, Paul is aware that they may go in the opposite direction. They may go back and become like the Pharisees, acting like morally superior people. Which is why Paul intervenes here and says, no, enough. Your job is done. In verse 8, I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love to him. And in case they hold back from forgiving this person because they think, well, Paul was harmed too, Paul reassures them in verse 10 and says, I also forgive them. In other words, they must take on board the third point, which is the power of forgiveness. You see, when Paul adds in verse 10, and what I have forgiven, if there is anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake. He says that out of a deep awareness of his own forgiveness, the forgiveness he has received. I know a lady um, who I like very much, and she's desperate, desperate to have some kind of Damascus Damascus Road experience like Paul had. She thinks that if she meets Jesus in the way that Paul did on the Damascus Road, it would make her easier to believe in Christ. But just think about that for a moment. What did Jesus say to Paul on that road? He said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. You see, Paul, before his conversion, had gone out of his way to persecute the church. He had the blood of Christians on his hands. Would we really like to meet Jesus for the first time and be told, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting? Or I am Jesus, whom you are starving because you've not helped the poor. Or I am Jesus, whom you are hating because you hate your wife or your ex-business partner or whatever your particular sin. You see, Jesus said, whatever you do for the least of these, you do for me. But Paul, he knew what it's like to be forgiven. Because Jesus, as you remember today on Palm Sunday, was prepared to go to Jerusalem of his own free will to go and die on a Roman cross so that our sins might be obliterated, completely wiped away, 
See, Paul knew the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but the power but to those who are being saved who are being saved, it is the power of God, the power of forgiveness. Paul, me, you, we are all forgiven sinners if we have accepted Christ. And Paul couldn't bring that repented that repentant man in Corinth to mind before Christ his Saviour, without remembering how much he himself, Paul, had been forgiven in the past. And every week as we contemplate the cross, we must do the same. You see, if not, we will never be able to forgive others or welcome newcomers into our church and show them that we also walk in the way of sin and forgiveness. Sin and forgiveness. Sin and forgiveness. And we won't be able to become that life-changing community of forgiven people that we want to be. Our sin sent Jesus to the cross. We remember that on Friday. His death and his resurrection brought us new life, brought us forgiveness. We remember that on Sunday. It's neither pharisaical judgment, nor is it false sentimentality. That is the Christian gospel. Let us pray. Father God, we um, come before you now this morning knowing that we are sinners and knowing that as we look to the cross, we are forgiven because of what Jesus has done for us. Lord, if any of us here haven't yet fully understand the magnitude of Jesus' death and resurrection and the significance that it has for us and our eternal life, Lord, may it fall into place today. But Lord, may all of us live in the sure knowledge and power of your forgiveness and accept and love others in the light of what you have done for us. Amen.